Hello, this is Terrence McNally. Inequality. In 1968, the pay ratios of CEOs to the typical worker was 20 to 1. In 1992, 100 to 1, and today, nearly 300 to 1. The top 10% of global carbon emitters generate almost half of all greenhouse gas emissions, and the top 1% are responsible for more than half the world's population. And in 2018, for the first time in history, America's richest 400 families paid a lower effective tax rate than the bottom half of American households. Here's my 2019 conversation with Emmanuel Sayers, professor and director of the Center for Equitable Growth at UC Berkeley, about inequality and his book, The Triumph of Injustice. You can learn more at ceg.berkeley.edu. Hello, I'm Terrence McNally, and welcome to another episode of Free Forum, a world that just might work. And I'll be speaking today with Emmanuel Saez, professor and director of the Center for Equitable Growth at UC Berkeley, about his newest book, The Triumph of Injustice, How the Rich Dodge Taxes and How to Make Them Pay. It's co-authored with Gabrielle Zuckman, and you can learn more at taxjusticenow, all one word, taxjusticenow.org. The show streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn, and podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, Podomatic.com, Google Play, SoundCloud, about every podcast site you can find, and at my site, TerrenceMcNally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net. Now, a quick plug for participation. A um, couple of groups that, uh, the, the group that I sort of think is doing the the, the most complete job nationally of uh, helping people resist what's going on in D.C. and work for the uh, healthy and just society we all deserve, indivisible.us, indivisible. It's uh, got like 5,000 uh, local uh, groups, and every week you'll get like five tips of what you can do to be most effective. Two groups that were primarily digital for years but are working handily with Grassroots organizations now on a national level, moveon.org, moveon, one word, .org, and for the state of California, Courage Campaign, one word, couragecampaign.org. Two that are very specific in terms of democratic participation, five calls, that's the number five, and the word calls, five calls, one word, .org, which tells you what are the most timely and relevant calls you can make to your representatives, and Town Hall Project, one word, townhallproject.com, which tells you when your representatives are going to be holding meetings at home uh, in your district, and uh, you can go and, uh, you know, speak to them yourselves. And finally, because climate change is so damn important, 350.org. Now to today's guest. Emmanuel Sy's new book, The Triumph of Injustice, co-authored with Gabriel Zuckman, begins with big news. In 2018, for the first time in history, America's richest billionaires paid a lower tax rate, a lower effective tax rate, than the working class. Their analysis of Americans' effective tax rate since the 60s finds that in 2018, the average effective tax rate paid by the richest 400 families in the country was 23%, while the bottom half of American households paid more than a percentage point higher at 24.2%. So, We'll talk about it more, but, but effective tax rate means everything. Your local tax, your sales tax, your license fees, all of that sort of thing. When you add that all up to give a real picture of what taxation is, the 400 richest families are paying less than the lower 50%. 
We've heard about the enormous shares of our nation's wealth that the uh, in the hands and the pockets of the 1% and even more so the 0.1%, but not so much about how their taxes have collapsed at the same time to levels last seen in the 1920s. Even more than wealth, perhaps, taxes are the result of political choices, the gradual exemption of capital owners, the surge of a new tax avoidance industry, and the authors believe most critically tax competition between nations. Solutions? They've advised Elizabeth Warren on her proposed wealth tax, but even bigger picture, they propose global cooperation to create a tax regime that actually serves universal democratic ends rather than the tax competition and sort of race to the bottom that we now see. Emmanuel Seiz is professor of economics and director of the Center for Equitable Growth at UC Berkeley. He received his PhD in economics from MIT in 1999. He received the John Bates Clark Medal in 2009. That's awarded to the American economist under the age of 40, judged to have made the most significant contribution to economic thought and knowledge. And he was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship in 2010. He's one of the authors of the groundbreaking World Inequality Report 2018. Welcome, Emmanuel Saez, to Free Forum, a world that just might work. Hello, Terence. Very happy to be here today. Wonderful. And let me tell listeners we're recording this conversation. Friday, October 25th. Now, Emmanuel, I like listeners to get a feel for the people behind the ideas and the work that we end up talking about. So can you talk briefly about your personal path to the work you find yourself doing today? And I'm not just asking, like, how come you wrote this book? We'll talk about that later. But, you know, over time, since you were young, maybe, mentors, turning points, moments of decision, how did you get to where you are today? So I, I grew up in uh, France, and I started studying uh, mathematics, but I was always interested in social and economic issues, and economic science, or the field of economics, was a great way to use you know, my analytical skills put them to use uh, to, to understand better the, the social world. So I, I, I studied in France, and I met uh, Thomas Piketty in the early 1990s, who encouraged me to uh, come to the United States to do uh, a PhD, and that's how I came to, to the U.S. in the late uh, 90s. And I kept in touch uh, with uh, Thomas Piketty, uh, that I uh, view as my uh, mentor and then became uh, a co-author. And very early in my career, around 2000, with Thomas Piketty, we analyzed uh, tax statistics for over a century since the beginning of the income tax in uh, 1913. And we put together those series describing how much of total income was going to the top one and we found that very big U-shape, that is, the U.S. was a very unequal country uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. Then inequality came down a lot during the Great Depression, the New Deal, World War II, stayed low for decades, and then surged uh, again starting uh, around 1980. So we started putting those series uh, together almost 20 uh, years ago, and slowly they seeped into the U.S. Uh, policy uh, debate. You know, so the idea of the, the 1% uh, gaining a lot of income, the 99% uh, income stagnating, that is in part, you know, based on the, on the series we, we, we put together. So I've continued doing work on inequality, income inequality, wealth inequality, the role of tax policy, and finally, 
very recently, you know, over the last year with my uh, brilliant young colleague, Gabriel Zuckman, we decided to put that together in a book. And the book, even though it is about, you know, the read topic of uh, taxation, <laughs> is really a book for the broader public. That is, for our listening, you know, taxes are by the people and for the people, and we wanted to explain them uh, in a way that would allow uh, everybody uh, interested to engage in the, in the tax policy debate. Okay, and let me just say to people, I, I, and the, it was interesting, the, the word you said, arid, right? That, that uh, tax policy is arid, or, or uh, even, you know, people would say, it, it goes over my head, it puts me to sleep, etc., etc. Let me just say about your book, um, before you get to the notes, it's, it's 197 pages. This is not a massive tome like Graeber's book on debt, right, which was 500 and some pages. This is 200 pages, and it is written so that the people who pay taxes actually can understand them. Yes, that, that was really uh, our goal. It is not everything we know about taxes. Right. is what we think everybody should know. Mm-hmm. about taxes, and it comes, as you mentioned earlier, with a, with a website, a companion website, taxjusticenow.org, where people can really participate in the policy debate, modify existing taxes, and, and really engage and understand how this all fits together. Right, and they can put in their own numbers and, and find out what their effective tax rate is, Right. That is right. Yeah. So, so that's, that's really, I mean, I, I see when, you, when, when academics turn around and write a 200-page book for the general public and put up an interactive website, I say this is, this is taking action. This is bringing it to, to the people. Uh, before we go on, I, I think let's talk about two uh, aspects of inequality, wh- why this is such a problem. And the first one I want to bring up is the book, The Spirit Level by Wilkinson and Pickett, which I've, I've interviewed them a couple of times on this show. Um, and the spirit level, for anyone who's, who's listened for years to me, know that what they did was they did an epidemiological study, 30 years of research, data from all countries all over the world, and the finding they found was that the most unequal societies have worse outcomes for not just the poor, but even the wealthy. That basically across the board and things that you wouldn't expect. Okay, so infant mortality goes up with inequality and, and homelessness goes up. With, but so does in, innovation goes, goes down with inequality and things that we think aren't affected by inequality are. So some, if you want to just speak to the context of why inequality is a problem. Yes. So, you know, human... Uh, Human societies are based on cooperations. We do things together, and pretty much any human endeavor is done through team. That's true uh, at work, when you are a student, and that's reflected in the way our societies work in the sense that we have large uh, governments, and because when we pull together our resources to achieve a number uh, of aims, you know, to make our societies uh, work better. And as a result, because we're constantly interacting with each other, really the way we humans are going to uh, evaluate how well we are doing is not based on an absolute level of material well-being, but it's how we fit, how we are doing uh, relative to others in society. So that's why 
no matter how rich our society will become, the issue of inequality and disparity of uh, resources will always uh, be with us. And I, I fully agree uh, with the, the, the findings of the group that is even in very wealthy societies, certainly by historical standard, the U.S. is a very uh, wealthy uh, country. The ills uh, of inequality are very uh, visible. You know, even though we might have material well-being, that is, people don't suffer from hunger, we will see a lot of pathologies develop when there is uh, a lot of inequality. And indeed, in our research, you know, the, the underlying uh, findings uh, we have that we've refined over the years was really to, to study how uh, economic growth benefits uh, each group in society over the, the long run. And so a well-functioning society is a society where economic growth is widely distributed so that everybody, the working class, the middle class, the upper middle class, the rich, benefit uh, equally from economic growth. And that's how the U.S. society uh, was working from the end of World War II up to 1980. Growth was very evenly distributed every year each person was gaining, on average, you know, 2% in economic growth in, in real time. That changed dramatically uh, starting in 1980. Since 1980, growth in the United States has been extremely uh, unequally distributed, so much that actually the real incomes of the bottom 50% have pretty much stagnated on a pre-tax basis, what the average person in the working class, we call the working class the bottom 50% of the income distribution is making today in real term, is no more uh, than what it was almost 40 years ago. And here, you know, we, 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 it's, it's, it's obvious in retrospect that a society that keeps growing but doesn't deliver growth to half of its population is not... Uh, is not a sustainable uh, society. Something uh, will have uh, uh, to happen. So in the, in the U.S., growth has concentrated at the top. That is, the, the growth rate that doesn't happen at the bottom obviously uh, goes, uh, goes to the top, and the top is posting uh, growth rates much higher uh, than, uh, than the average uh, economy-wide. So in, in other words, the economic growth at the macroeconomic level that we always hear about doesn't mean anything anymore because it's not happening for the bottom 50%. And at the top, they are getting growth rates, you know, that look more like China than uh, uh, the average uh, in the economy. So that's the challenge in front of us. And as we will discuss, you know, taxes are going to be one crucial aspect of the of the solution. Okay, and I want to set a couple of other more things in context. And one is um, that you open the book with a moment in the first Trump Clinton debate, when Hillary Clinton points out that uh, the only tax data we have from uh, candidate Trump, who had refused to uh, release his tax returns, uh, claiming the audit prevented him from, which was a false claim. But he had and still continues to resist, uh, although it uh, sounds like the uh, Southern District of New York is going to get their hands on some finally. But when she 
pointed out that he had paid that what the, the one figures they had, which was from a casino application some years earlier, indicated that he had paid no taxes in that year. His retort was, that makes me smart. Why is that where your book opens? So we wanted to open the book with that theme because uh, Trump, you know, Trump's view that uh, avoiding taxes is the right thing to do and uh, one should be uh, proud of it, is a dramatic shift in uh, the perception of how a society uh, should work. And the turning point is really uh, 1980. So in 1980, Ronald Reagan is elected uh, and, and says, you know, in a, in a very dramatic uh, a turn, uh, the government is the problem. Right. And by saying that, he essentially changes the values in society by saying uh, it is a legitimate thing to try to avoid uh, taxes. And, and that is exactly what uh, Trump uh, now represents. And so what was uh, so striking here is that Hillary Clinton wasn't really able uh, to offer an alternative view, that is, she, she wouldn't have been able to find in her uh, arsenal, you know, of detailed tax proposals, something to be able to tell Donald Trump, with my tax plan, you are going, uh, it's going to be different, and you are going to pay uh, for real, you know, taxes proportional to your uh, ability to pay. Very good. Um, let me also just to say another book that uh, I think is a, is a partner with this one, because the, one of the points that you and, and your co-author make is that this did not just happen. And in fact, that uh, America had this history, uh, which goes back and you quote Wilson and you quote FDR and so on. It, we had a history where progressive taxation was was American as apple pie, um, and that we were the leader in the world in progressive taxation, and that, that there were choices made. And as you point out, 1970, I think, is when they begin to get nibbled at, and 1980 is when it begins full force. But the book that I would recommend as a partner book to this is Winner Take All Politics by Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson. Uh, Paul Pearson is a colleague of yours at UC Berkeley, correct? And uh, in that book, they point out a lot of how where we've come to was not, didn't just happen, that it was choices, and your book carries that on. Um, let me uh, tell you that as I was uh, reading, as I was listening to interviews uh, with you and so on, it occurred to me that a format that I use sometimes uh, is really applicable to this book and this conversation, and I call it, It's Broke, Let's Fix It. First question how is it broken? What we're talking about here is the tax system. How is it broken? The evidence. I think we've already dealt with that to some extent, although I will, I will start with that question again. But we've talked about how it has shifted, um, what, it, what, the, what the realities are now and so on. But the evidence that our tax system is broken. The second question, big question, how did it get broken? What's the history? And we've begun to talk about that. Um, and the final one is how can we fix it? What are the solutions? And it was just your book and everything I've seen you say about uh, this book really fits those three questions. So the first big one, if, as I say, we've, we've begun to do it. But if you want to flesh out a bit more, the evidence that the system is broken. Yes. So, so we open also our book by saying, as, as you said earlier on, that in 2018, the very richest pay 
tax rate relative to their income that is only 23%, probably lower you know, than any other income group in the, in the country. So how, how can that be uh, possible, given that we all know that the, the individual income tax, the most famous tax that Americans file uh, every year, is, is very progressive in the sense that it has inc tax rates increasing with income. So there are two ways to explain uh, uh, this very low tax rate at the very top. The, the first one is that if you are really, really wealthy, the income you report on your tax return, individual tax return, may be only a fraction of your true economic income. And in the book, we give the example of uh, Warren Buffett, the third richest American, because he, he has wealth today of 80 billion. Probably his income is the corporate profits you know, made by his company Berkshire Hathaway is probably around 5% of his wealth every year. So that's something like $4 billion. Uh, yet he reported, he disclosed uh, that his income reported on his tax return was only 10 million in 2015. So you see, 10 million is almost nothing relative to a true income of uh, 5 billion. So the individual income tax doesn't work for the super rich because the super rich don't need uh, to realize their income. That's in sharp contrast to uh, ordinary uh, workers who each year have to report their full economic income. And the second thing that has happened with the recent uh, Trump tax cut is that the corporate tax has been slashed. In corporate tax revenue at the federal level has fallen by uh, 40% from 2017 to 2018. And the corporate tax is the tax that the super rich pay through their corporation. Warren Buffett pays corporate tax through the profits, you know, that his company Berkshire Hathaway uh, makes. So combine the two things, and now you have a system uh, that becomes uh, regressive at the very, very top. Very good. So that's that's the evidence. And I, I just want to point out one thing. You know, as you were speaking, there were certain things which just jump out at me. And what you're saying is that with the passage of that uh, tax bill, and if one were to look at what the uh, Trump administration has actually, with their Congress, uh, passed, that's about the, the main piece of legislation, that, that, that the change was 40% in one year. That, yes, that just a decline of 40% in corporate tax revenue in one year. In, in, I mean, I, I'm sure that people, you know, A, there was the arguments at the time of, oh, it's going to help everybody because of the way they front-loaded the stuff for the middle class and, you know, all of that. But that number is, is just uh, shocking. Okay, so that's the evidence that we get a tax system that's broken. And I will, I will uh, ask you to, to share one other thing, which is that um, you, you, you say, uh, there's, a, there's a line from, from your work which says, the triumph of tax injustice the book that is called The Triumph of Injustice, The Triumph of Tax Injustice is above all a denial of democracy. And if you want to just expand on that just a bit. Yes, so, so we, we, we say this because taxing the rich is always popular. If you uh, look at polls, uh, increasing taxes on the rich, polls pretty well, the wealth tax polls well, it's not not just among Democrats, but even uh, among 
Republican. So how is it then that we've experienced such a dramatic decline in tax progressivity, progressive taxes are popular? And so what we say in the book is that this happens in two steps. First, if you start from a progressive tax system and you want to undermine it, the, the way you do it is you let tax avoidance fester. That is, instead of having a, a strong enforcement, as it was the case early on in the United States, you let the rich and the tax avoidance industry peddle new products. And once you see that there is a lot of tax avoidance, you come in and you say, look, taxing the rich doesn't work. Therefore, the solution is to slash tax rates. That's what happened with the Reagan administration and the individual income tax in the 1980, where the tax shelters uh, making you know, business losses and allowing people to deduct those losses uh, proliferated. And as a result, Congress came together with Reagan and decided uh, on a bipartisan basis, actually, to uh, dramatically lower uh, the top tax rates of the individual income tax in exchange for closing uh, these loopholes. More recently, in the 1990s and especially the 2000s, there has been um, a, 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 an enormous explosion of tax evasion avoidance by uh, corporations, multinational corporations, who, which essentially in the, in the current system can decide with the help of their accountant where they are, they are booking profits. And obviously it's to their advantage to book profits in uh, low uh, tax jurisdictions, tax havens, such as the Cayman Islands, Bermudas, Ireland. And the, the, again, you know, the story plays again. Uh, people say economists, the establishment, and actually it's almost a bipartisan uh, view. It's, it's too hard to tax corporations. We have to cut tax rates. So Trump did it in a very extreme way, uh, lowering the tax rate from 35 to 21. But even the Obama administration, or for example, you know, the Joe Biden uh, campaign, thought, you know, that 35 was too high and the rate needed to go uh, down. And, and they proposed, you know, 28%. Okay. Now, one thing I want to point out there, that it, 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 it's it's clearly the way history has worked out, and yet it seems in a way absurd or, or insane that the more that people, individuals avoided taxes, and finally the more that corporations avoided taxes, the government's response was not enforcement, but lowering the taxes. In other words, if I cheat you, your response is not going to be to... Uh, to, to get back at me for cheating, you're going to say, okay, okay, I'm sorry, and you're going to back off. It, it is so, as I say, absurd and insane. Now, what you began to get into there, Emmanuel, was the second question, which is what is the history? How, how did it get broken? And, and you've definitely begun to lay that out with that pattern and, and the culmination in the, 20, uh, in, in the Trump tax cuts. The, the thing that you point out, uh, you, you and Gabrielle point out so strongly, is that the international, the global tax competition, the race to the bottom in corporate taxes and other kinds of shelters is really a huge factor. How do, we're, I think we're moving into solutions now, but how do you counter that? 
In other words, that's an argument that people make and they go, I mean, with, with when when a Biden, I guess, you know, even says corp, or Obama corporate tax is too high. It's that, well, it's, you know, what can we do? Corporations are going to leave. Your response to that? Yes. So the view by most economists and most of the uh, uh, policymakers in uh, Western countries was that uh, tax competition is a law of nature. <laughs> if the rich are mobile, if corporations are mobile, there's no hope in taxing them. And therefore, we should try, you know, to win that tax competition by lowering uh, tax rates more than our neighbors. Our point in the book, and perhaps that's the most important point we want to make in the book, is that this view that tax competition and low taxes on corporations and the rich are inevitable is wrong. There are ways to design uh, the tax system that can make taxes on corporations and the rich uh, work and reconcile globalization with tax progressivity. And one of the things you say is that it is not a law of nature that nations compete against each other for lower corporate taxes, that there could be, you point out, and what you advocate for, is global cooperation to actually get together and say, this is what our societies need. Um, let's, let's work together on taxation instead of fight each other, correct? That is correct. That is, there are a number of aspects where countries are able to come together to design norms, you know, human rights, uh, laws uh, for uh, trade that benefit everybody, and taxation should be, you know, one of those, uh, one of those aspects. Yeah, I mean, r radical, but sensible. And one of the points you make out is that we do make these trade agreements. And in these trade agreements, we do put human rights things. We do put environmental uh, terms and that we could, in trade agreements, put tax cooperation as, as, a, 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 as one of the points. Yes. So, so ideally, you would want cooperation across nations, but what we point out in the book as well is that a large country such as the United States can start moving by itself and make a huge difference. That is, we don't have to wait until every country or every large uh, country uh, agrees. We can get we can get started uh, right now. And we'll get right into here. let me we'll get into the specifics of that in one second. Let me tell people uh, this is free forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terence McNally. I'm speaking with Emmanuel Says, professor and director of the Center for Equitable Growth at UC Berkeley. And we're talking about his newest book, co-authored with Gabriel Zuckman, The Triumph of Injustice, How the Rich Dodge Taxes and How to Make Them Pay. And you can learn more and actually in a very interactive way at the uh, website they've set up to uh, accompany the book, taxjusticenow.org. One word, tax justicenow.org. Hello, I'm Terrence McNally. You're listening to my 2019 conversation with Emmanuel Sayers, professor and director of the Center for Equitable Growth at UC Berkeley, about inequality and his book, The Triumph of Injustice. You can learn more at ceg.berkeley.edu. So we're, we're beginning to talk about the solutions. Um, one of the solutions, by the way, I think is that website, because I think uh, what you put there is 
don't take our word for it, uh, sort of. Don't, don't just, it, it, put your own, get in there, mess around with these numbers. Um, and I think the awareness that may be gained is, is a helpful one because I think a lot of, as we know, policymakers, politicians, pundits uh, so often talk about income tax as if that's the only thing. And this, just this whole understanding of effective tax rates, I think, is a start for, 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 for millions of people. So some of your solutions, as you were saying, you said the U.S., even if they didn't start out with uh, international cooperation, could on its own without uh, n- n- enormous negative repercussions change its own policies in terms of corporate profits. One of the points, by the way, that you make is that this whole thing you know, this whole conversation about, oh, they'll move to another country. As you point out, they don't move to other countries. They just do paperwork that moves to other countries. Exactly. That's the, the work, the academic work that Gabriel had done and that we uh, uh, describe in the book. When you look at the data today, U.S. multinationals report about 60% of their foreign profits in very low tax jurisdictions, tax havens. And that's up from a negligible number, you know, back in the, in the 1970s. So they report 60% of their foreign profits in low tax jurisdictions. But if you look at workers or real capital, you know, building, machines, etc., those are not in the tax havens. They are in the large foreign countries such as China, Germany, France, the United Kingdom. But the paper profits can move to uh, the low-tax jurisdictions because essentially the way the system works today is that companies can decide with the help of their uh, tax accountants where the profits are going to be reported. And that's obviously uh, not a system that's going to uh, work. I mean, in very simple terms, if companies are allowed to cheat easily and shirk their tax duties, they are going to take uh, advantage of this. But as we point out, there are uh, solutions. So let me just explain, you know, one, just just so that the, the, the listeners can see why it's not very complicated, at least at the level of, of principles. Very good. In, instead of letting uh, corporations uh, get away by reporting profits in low-tax jurisdictions, the U.S. could impose a minimum tax on U.S. multinationals country by country. That is, suppose the minimum tax is uh, 35%. And uh, the, the same, you know, as the, as the corporate tax uh, uh, of 35% before the Trump tax cut. And suppose... Apple reports a very large fraction of their profits in uh, in Ireland, where it pays only 5%. In that case, the U.S. would immediately impose uh, a, 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 an extra tax of 30% to get to a total of 35% on Apple's profits in Ireland. So that solution effectively precludes multinationals from shifting income in low-tax places because the U.S. would collect uh, the money or the taxes uh, they don't pay. And and this solution is operational because it's already the case that we have the information infrastructure, that is, the tax authorities here, the IRS receives information about how much profits 
each multinational books in each country and how much taxes uh, they pay. So we, we, we know the data's there. It would just be a change in rules. And, 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 and it isn't as if, you know, uh, the Cayman Islands could, uh, you know, could retaliate in any way that would hurt us. I mean, you know, it's like this is, you know, this is, this is pretty, pretty obvious. And as you say, um, you know, people are not going – I mean, yes, we've moved, we've moved factories to Mexico. We've moved factories to China and Vietnam. That's, that's a different issue. That doesn't have to do with taxes. That has to do with labor. Um, uh, okay, so, so the number one is to change that uh, corporate global uh, system on, on, on taxation and tax havens. Second, you say um, this, this thing that we talked about would be uh, – uh, 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 to make that even more effective uh, would be to coordinate tax rates with other industrialized countries. And we talked about that, that, that it's, it could be part of uh, trade uh, agreements and so on. And, and the, the current system, it seems, doesn't necessarily help very many people or countries, uh, except it helps the accounting industry and the multinational corporations. Um, and so you advocate tax cooperation. The third one, which is one that it seems just drives me crazy that it hasn't happened already, is ending the rules that tax capital gains and dividends at lower rates than other income. Speak to that one. Yes. So, so currently, uh, the individual income tax doesn't work very well at the very top because, as we discussed the case of Warren Buffett, uh, the very rich can avoid it by not realizing uh, their income. And actually, if you never realize your income in your life, you will essentially uh, avoid entirely the tax because the, the, the capital gains that are never been realized at death, the tax on that is uh, forgiven. So for the very rich who don't need to consume uh, their income while they are alive, they benefit from that, this uh, uh, enormous uh, loophole. And so among economists, among all candidates you know, on the de democratic side, there is a broad consensus to uh, close, close this loophole by taxing capital gains uh, unrealized capital gains, you know, at the time, uh, uh, at the time of death. And let me but just let me just say to anyone who doesn't quite understand what realizing capital gains means, it means you own stock, and the stock goes up, and you get dividends. You will not pay taxes until the stock, um, or no, you will get tax on the dividends, but you won't. Uh, when you say realized, it's when you sell it. Right. In other words, gains that are accumulating, you are not taxed on until you sell it. And the rich, as you point out, don't need that income, so they don't sell it. Correct. Okay. Correct. That's why the, the biggest fortunes in America today, you know, you go through the top of the list, you know, Jeff Bezos, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Warren Buffett, don't pay that much taxes because they are not selling much of their stock. The stock doesn't pay dividends, so there's no income showing up on the individual income tax return, and that's why, you know, their rate relative to their true economic income is so low, the point we make in the book. Right. And, and this is interesting to some people probably that if you run a company like Berkshire Hathaway um, or Amazon, you can decide. Uh, you have great influence and, 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 uh, on whether that they, they uh, provide dividends or not. And so, yes. you, you know, and as you point out, Berkshire Hathaway does not. So, and, and, of course, the justification of why income earned by 
capital gains should be taxed at a different rate than income earned by people who don't have stock and who just have their own labor, uh, you know, to provide for themselves. Uh, the the logic of it, I've I've never even understood. Yeah, effectively, it's the it's the biggest unfairness, biggest loophole in our current tax system, and I think you know it happens. It's 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 hard to reform because it's always possible to find some cases where paying that tax uh, would be kind of a hardship because perhaps it's a family that has yes. only one uh, asset, real right. estate, where you know paying that tax uh, at death would be seen as an undue burden. And and I think this is a good segue, you know, to the to the wealth tax that I want to make yes, sure we yes, discuss today. Yes, very good. Let's shift to the wealth tax. That's what I was going to get to next. And the wealth tax. And let me just set it up for people. As you you've you've probably heard about that uh, Elizabeth Warren advocates a wealth tax. I believe Bernie Sanders now advocates a, a slightly different wealth tax. I think Tom Steyer. Um, uh, also advocates a wealth tax. And you folks uh, were involved with advising Elizabeth Warren on her wealth tax. Um, let's talk about wealth tax. Go ahead. Emmanuel Sykes. Yes. So, so wealth tax is a, is a tax on your total assets. So not your, the income you make, but the sum of your assets. So uh, uh, your house, net of mortgage debt, uh, but also all your financial wealth, savings, uh, accounts, mutual funds, stocks you may own, bonds, etc. So the, in the U.S., we do have a wealth tax for the middle class, and it's called the property tax. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's, it's a wealth tax only on one form of asset, so the most commonly uh, uh, owned asset you know, in, the, in the broad middle class. The wealth tax, in contrast, would hit all the assets. And instead of being paid by anybody regardless of means, it would start only at a very high threshold uh, of wealth. So 50 million in the case of the Warren wealth tax proposal and 32 million in the case of the Sanders uh, wealth tax proposal. Okay, and and one thing I want to point out that I had never heard before that I learned from you uh, was that uh, Franklin Roosevelt advocated uh, extreme progressivity in in the tax code not to to raise revenue or not simply to raise revenue, but because he felt that inequality was not uh, good for the society. And he had uh, suggested 100% tax on income over 25 thousand, which back then would have, I think, which today would equal like six million or something. But it's interesting that in our history, this notion that you don't accumulate that sort of wealth, you know, that's only uh, 50, 60 years ago. That was that was a, a bone of contention. Do we have the data to be able to pull this off, to tax uh, everyone on their wealth? Yes. So, 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 so the, the wealth tax, its key advantage uh, politically is that it's very clear, it's very simple. Everybody understands that's going to be a tax on the rich. You know, the discussion we had on capital gains before is kind of more technical, mm-hmm. harder for people to, uh, to understand. The, the wealth tax has this enormous uh, advantage, and I think that's why, you know, uh, the Elizabeth Warren campaign, you know, got, got such a boost, you know, because it was such a clear uh, uh, policy proposal. Now, the critics say it's going to be hard to uh, make this work, the rich are going to be able to uh, evade or avoid the tax. And they give the example of European countries, Mm -hmm. uh, a number of which 
had uh, wealth taxes and they didn't work very well and they've been uh, by and large abandoned. And so the point we make in the book again is that whether or not a wealth tax will work depends on how it's going to be structured and how it's going to be enforced. And so relative to Europe, there are three crucial advantages that illustrate well, you know, the, the, this issue throughout the book, you know, that avoidance, evasion depends uh, uh, on, 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 on what you do. And so let me just give a, a couple examples. The, the European wealth taxes were subject to tax competition because moving abroad was enough to immediately extinguish the tax. That is, if you were a rich Parisian and you moved to London, after one year you were no longer liable for the French wealth tax. In the U.S., in contrast, uh, taxation is based on citizenship. So if you're a wealthy American, moving abroad uh, would, 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 not, would not allow you to escape the wealth tax. You would have to renounce your citizenship, and even then, you would have to pay a huge uh, exit tax. So that makes fleeing abroad uh, not an option anymore to avoid the tax. The second issue, uh, the reason why the European wealth taxes didn't work well, it's, it was easy for people to put their money in Swiss bank accounts, and Switzerland and the Swiss banks were not cooperating. With, the, uh, with France, let's say, you know, to, to, uh, to share information. The U.S. has actually moved decisively uh, to fight this form of offshore tax evasion with uh, a law passed in 2010 under the Obama administration, the Foreign Account Tax Compliant Act, you know, FATCA acronym, but think FATCAT. Uh, <laughs> and, and that uh, regulation requires all foreign institutions to tell the IRS uh, of accounts and how much there is, you know, of any U.S. residents under, you know, uh, risk of stiff penalties if you don't comply. So you see, just with these two examples, you can see that essentially uh, the way you structure the enforcement is going to be crucial. And, and we think that with these two factors, uh, a U.S. wealth tax could uh, 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 could re really work in, in in a way that the European wealth taxes never never did. As you point out, the fact that the uh, uh, European wealth taxes failed is not necessarily a reason not to try it. It's to learn the lessons of why they failed and institute it, uh, having learned those lessons. Okay, a couple of other. Uh, objections to the wealth tax are you've had folks, uh, Larry Summers and, uh, and his uh, ally, um, I'm forgetting her name right now, uh, they said that your estimates of the amount of revenue or Elizabeth Warren's estimates, your estimates of the amount of revenue that would be gained by a wealth tax were way off. Well, what's your response to that one? said the wealth tax would raise, the Warren wealth tax would raise, you know, 200 billion uh, a year. Summers and, uh, uh, sorry, Natasha Sarin you know, right. said only 25 billion uh, a year. And so one way to, to, to see it is that we assumed, you know, that the evasion avoidance rate would only be 15% with the strong enforcement in the, in the, in the wealth tax proposal. Summers and Sarin uh, essentially say, no, evasion avoidance is going to be 90%. <laughs> and that's why uh, the tax take uh, is so low. 
And frankly, yes, if we do a wealth tax and there is 90% evasion, yeah, it's not it's not worth doing. But I think we can do better than that. I mean, to, to, to just show you how absurdly high, you know, the evasion rate of 90% is, if I take just the 15 richest Americans from the Forbes 400 list, there is already there $1 trillion in wealth. And so if I put the 3% Warren wealth tax on that, I get $30 billion. It's already more, you know, than the $25 billion that Summers and Sarin uh, are saying, the, the full tax, you know, on the full mm -hmm. 75,000 families uh, that the Warren wealth tax would, would apply to uh, would, would raise. So, so, you know, Summers and Sarin are right in a world where uh, the administration wants the wealth tax to fail. That could, uh, that could happen. But you hope that, and historically, when you, you look at... Uh, progressive tax uh, revolutions, when they are made, they come with uh, strong enforcement. That's certainly what happened, you know, under the New Deal of uh, Roosevelt. So you hope that if such a bold uh, proposal happens, it will come uh, with, uh, with a, a, a well-designed uh, enforcement. And that's where we see, you know, where economies can be the most uh, useful. It's really about learning the lessons from past failures, exactly as you said, in Europe, knowing the literature, how the rich uh, avoid, and making sure you design a system that fixes uh, leaks. Economists as uh, plumbers, as the, you know, the, the <laughs> this year Nobel Prize Esther Duflo yeah. uh, famously, famously said you know, in, a, in, a, in an article she wrote. Okay, so so as I want to point out, yes, if 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 a if the U.S. decides that it wants to handle this problem, uh, this problem of inequality and all of its ramifications, if it decides that we can't afford health care without raising more money from the, from the wealthy, if we can't afford education, if we can't afford the things that make our country thrive um, without taxing the wealthy, when it makes that decision, it would why would it with one hand say we're going to institute a wealth tax and with the other hand say, but we're not going to enforce it? If the, if the political will is there to, uh, to uh, create the wealth tax, you would think at onset the political will would be there to create enforcement. That is right. Yeah. In other words, yes, if we don't care, then, you know, any of these negative things. But it is it, it is uh, it's 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 uh, a bit uh, not quite fair play to criticize a proposal uh, based on the fact that you think that Congress is going to undermine that proposal. So so that's that's that one. Now, the other one is that some people say there's a constitutional issue that, in fact, the Constitution wouldn't allow a wealth tax. Your response to that? Yes. So so on this, there is a, a debate among legal scholars, which means that in the end, you know, it's going to be the nine judges on the Supreme Court uh, who are going to decide. And our view is that you have to be prepared uh, for the wealth tax being uh, uh, shut down, and therefore you need to have backup solutions. There are ways to uh, present a wealth tax as a tax, you know, on true economic income. That is, if you say, you know, it's unfair that Warren Buffett has so little income tax, given his enormous wealth, 
you can say, you know, that uh, a wealth of one billion is deemed, you know, to generate a, a return, you know, of 50 million a year, and therefore, you know, there's going to be a tax on that presumptive income that would work essentially as a wealth tax. So, I mean, already there we go more into technicalities, but mm-hmm. yes, we have to be careful that there might be a failure at the Supreme Court level, and there needs to be uh, a way, you know, to, uh, uh, to have a backup plan that achieves substantially uh, the same uh, the same thing, you know, but presented more as a, as an income tax. Yeah, and I and, and that's that's interesting. So we redefine the definition of income, and 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 that that uh, helps get around the possible constitutional interpretation. I think one thing that I heard someone point out in discussing this was that, um, it, you know, the the current court is very business friendly. It's 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 very wealth friendly, but. Perhaps uh, Roberts uh, might take the same approach as he did with uh, the uh, Health Care Act, which is that um, something that has just been passed by Congress and seems to have the political uh, will of the Congress and the people is not something you just throw out and that, uh, you know, that it might not be inevitable even that that would happen. Uh, okay. Um, let me ask you about this. What about we, we talked about, you know, that it wouldn't be it isn't fair to critique a proposal by saying that it wouldn't pass in any form that you would recognize. Um, let me ask a couple of questions to deal with the political realities. What if you, you've basically uh, I think we talked about it. You've, you've got increasing corporate taxes. You've got doing capital gains at the same rate as income. You've got the wealth tax. And there's a fourth. Oh, the fourth thing you have is a national income tax which you add as if you want to be ambitious, if you want to take care of uh, college education or you want to do some sort of a health care for all plan, that it, you might need additional taxes. Uh, just mm-hmm. briefly speak to that one. Yes. So currently, the, the way health care is funded in the United States is very unfair because essentially it's paid by the worker through their employer. But effectively, that those healthcare premia that the employer pays on the behalf of their employee are borne by, uh, by the employee. And that's not a sustainable way of uh, financing healthcare, given that healthcare costs are so high. It's an enormous burden on low-wage workers. So, so we, we, we don't think it's sustainable, and therefore the funding will have to be something based on ability to pay, like taxes. And, and if you do that transition, effectively the healthcare premium that your employer is currently paying on your behalf becomes extra wages. And of course you have to pay your tax on those extra wages, but if your wages are not very high, you are going to, to come ahead. You're, and you're... one form of tax we propose you know, to have this broad funding of a big uh, healthcare program would be what we call a national income tax, which is a true flat tax on uh, all forms of income, you know, all forms of labor compensation, but also uh, the corporate profits mm-hmm. and, the, and, the, and the capital uh, income. That's one possibility. Some candidates, you know, want to uh, finance healthcare by having the rich, you know, contribute a lot more, and that's the wealth tax, the capital gains that we've talked about, mm-hmm. the corporate uh, tax. Probably in the long run, if you're going to fund healthcare fully through the government, you will need 
some uh, extra tax, but if we make an extra tax, let's make sure it's, it's, a, it's a fair one, really based on ability to pay and not an extra tax, you know, on consumption, such as they have in Europe, you know, through their value-added tax. Very good. We're going to bring this conversation to a close. I think we've covered it uh, pretty well, Emmanuel. I, I mean, I knew it was a lot to take on, but I think we've covered it pretty well. Again, the book is The Triumph of Injustice, How the Rich Dodge Taxes and How to Make Them Pay, co-authored uh, by Gabriel Zuckman. And the website, and this is a website where you not only can learn, but you can interactively find what your tax situation is and would be under their proposals and so on, taxjusticenow.org. Taxjusticenow, one word, .org. For this conversation and many other interviews and articles and to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, uh, go to terrencemcnally.net or a world that just might work.com. They're the same website, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net or a world that just might work, all one word, .com. Uh, if you want to receive my weekly email announcements uh, telling you who's going to be on, what we're going to talk about, and usually eight to ten articles to kind of flesh out the conversation, sign up at my site or email me at temcnally at mac.com, T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y at mac.com. You can also subscribe and listen to the Freeform podcast on iTunes and many other podcast sites. And you can find years of podcasts at my site or at those uh, podcast sites where you can listen anytime, anywhere. Michael Lewis, Jeremy Scahill, Naomi Klein, Robert Reich, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle, you get the idea. You can also follow me on Twitter, at McNally Terrence. Thanks to G. Lee and Mark Maxwell and George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices. And most of all, you, my listeners, please share this podcast widely. Thank you, Emmanuel Saez, and keep up your good work. Thank you very much for having me. Progressive Voices desperately needs your financial help. Please go to ProgressiveVoices.com and press the donate button right now. Thank you. If you want 24-7 access to everything progressive on the mobile internet, download the Progressive Voices app at ProgressiveVoices.com. The PV app is a one-stop shop that aggregates everything progressive. News, blogs, audio, video, opinion, then thoughtfully curates, prioritizes, and presents the progressive content. The purpose is to create a progressive media universe, an alternative to the one controlled by cable operators, radio station owners, and newspaper publishers. That's the PV app at ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Hi, it's radio veteran Nicole Sandler. Sadly, the radio we all grew up listening to and the industry in which I worked for 40 years has been decimated. Thanks to the Telecommunications Act of 1996, a handful of giant corporations control what you hear on the so-called public airwaves all across the nation. So you had better do what you were told. 
But times have changed. Turn it up, turn it up, a little bit higher. Radio. It's the 21st century, and at Progressive Voices, up. we're reclaiming so you know. our time. Progressive Voices, now powered by TuneIn, speaking truth to power 24-7 on the Progressive Voices Network.